Amen. Well, let's get our Bibles out and open to the book of Lamentations, the place where we hear sermons from Lamentations every day, don't we? Page 949 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Lamentations. So we're in the fifth week of our series called Life. And um, really just felt like somewhere in the last couple of weeks, I've been really thinking and praying about uh, where we're going to land and what stops along the way we're going to make. And I felt that we have a few... Uh, a few boulders that we need to scale over, tonight being one of them. And then we'll uh, move forward into a new study. Maybe we'll look at a, uh, a book study or just study through one portion of Scripture on Sunday nights for a few weeks. But tonight we're going to talk about when hope dies. Okay, we're all there. Lamentations 3, let's pray and then we'll study together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just confess before you now, Lord, that it's easy to say that we believe that this is your word and that it's intended for us and that, God, you have given it specifically and that it can apply and work and transform our lives even right here now tonight. But, Father, there's much of what we'll see tonight that is hard for us to understand. And so, Lord, we just pray that you will enable us to do what we need to do now. And in order for that to happen, we need you to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that the Holy Spirit may accomplish his ministry and allow us, Father God, to peer into this word and see the depths and the wonder of your character and nature that it may carry us in our time of need. So we thank you for what's about to take place, Lord. Give you all the praise and glory in advance for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at this familiar scenario that plays out in the human condition where suddenly in your life you are faced with this great tragedy, this uh, very hard scenario comes into your life, Some something that leaves you rattled and shaken and and bewildered. And what happens is, is that when we find ourselves in these moments of of disappointment and, and just dismay, we often will transcend that place and become disillusioned about God. See, we don't understand what's going on around us. We can't we, we can't see through the storm that's before us. And so what happens is we begin to find ourselves in a place of disillusionment. We find ourselves in a place where what we thought was true about God, we now see that it was an illusion. We were misleading ourselves. And when that illusion is exposed, it's a very, very hard place to be. Because what we do is we... We think, well, now, how can God allow such a terrible thing to happen? How can this be? I mean, I've, I've 
I've been praying. I've been faithful. I've been, we begin to think of all the things that we've done that would demand that God would do something different than what He's doing. But in spite of all of our, our best efforts and all of our faithfulness, all of the, 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 the things that we have managed to accomplish for God in our own eyes, things don't change. And so we, we have to, We have to look at a low place in Scripture to find our way through a situation like this. We don't want to paint a picture of a a place where uh, in Scripture and then find comfort from that and then find ourselves in our own life in a place that's far deeper and far darker and then say, well, you know, this is far worse than what I thought. And if we're going to do that, what we need to do is just look right in the book of Lamentations. It's... uh, It's a very short book. It's a very overlooked book. It's a place where we walk down the pathway of lament. You see, it's a place that causes us in our heart to ask the question, what what would I do if the worst thing I could imagine happened to me? If my greatest fear became a reality, what is the worst thing that you could ever imagine? Enduring. You know, I think some of us would would say, well, clearly it would be losing someone who we love very deeply. That, that's the, the greatest fear that we, we face. And yet at the same time, we also know that if we live long enough, that's inevitable. That's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to at some point lose someone that we love deeply. And so that's a reality we're all going to face. But if you, if you lost someone that you love deeply, maybe unexpectedly and suddenly, would that cause you to turn your back on God? What if, what if your loved one died as a result of a random act of violence? What if you lost the most precious and important person to you for just some nonsensical reason maybe maybe they're hit by a drunk driver maybe they're sitting in a movie theater and someone just opens fire some stranger who they never have met or known or maybe they are at work in a building it's bombed by terrorists have you been watching the faces of the families of those in, on Malaysia Flight 370, have you, I mean, day after day, vigil after vigil, the flowers stacked to the ceiling, the, the wall of, of writing and, 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 and concern and trying to process what happened to my loved one. What happened to my family, my brother, my mother, my sister, my, my daughter? What one minute they get on a plane, the next minute they're gone. We have no explanation. We don't know where it is. We don't, we don't know anything. And then maybe if that were you, maybe if you found yourself in that place, you would say, no, even there, even there, Tony, I wouldn't turn my back on God because even there I would say, no, I know people are evil. And so if people are, are involved, I know that people have, a, have a, the great capacity for evil. So I could get through that. Okay. 
So then what happens if if your, your loved one, your family, your friends, the people that you live life with, what if they just one day cease to exist as a result of a, a tornado, a tsunami, a hurricane, no people involved? It's just an act of God. One minute they're there, the next minute they're gone. Then what? There's no one to blame. There's no finger to point. But who's the only person who has control over a tsunami? Would you turn your back on him then? Would you harden your heart towards him then? Would you begin to find yourself in a place of disillusionment? Sure you would. And so would I. There would be a multitude of places we could find ourselves in Scripture reading along and read something and just think, in light of where I'm sitting, I wish this were true. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's not true for you now. And really, that's all that matters to you or to me in that moment. What if you systematically, one by one, lost everything that mattered to you? One day, something. The next day, another thing. The next day, another thing. The next day, another thing. You know the story. And so many people would say, but God would never allow that to happen. To which we would all say, ask Job. So, disillusionment. It's, the, it's when illusion is pulled back. It's when there's a realization that what you thought was true is not true. That things aren't as good as you thought they were. And you're left to pick up the pieces, to to deal with it. Well, let's push a little further. What What if the United States of America, in the midst of this calamity that's going on with you and your loved one, what if the United States of America faced an economic collapse? What if the infrastructure of this great nation just fell to its knees and anarchy broke out and factions erupted and it was no longer the United States of America, but it was like so many other countries around the world and across the span of history that in one moment were this great united empire and in the next moment they're split off into this one against that one. The north against the south, the east against the west, this little area against that little area. And you say to yourself, oh, that'll never happen. Really? You don't think it would? Let me paint a little picture for you. I mean, let's just go all the way and cheer ourselves up. Why not? So, according to the most recent... Census data, 80% of the population in the United States of America lives in 
urban center. That leaves 20% that live in rural America. Now, let me ask you a question. If you wake up tomorrow and electricity is non-existent or in short supply and gasoline is out of reach and there's a run on money and the banks are closed and suddenly the shelves in every supermarket across this land become barren. What do you think is going to happen to the 80% of people who live in urban places? What do you think is going to happen to the people who can't go outside or next door or find a neighbor who's growing corn or peas or whatever the case may be? What do you think is going to happen to the millions of people that live in a concrete jungle? What do you think they're going to do? They're going to expect the 20% to feed them. And the 20% is going to say, forget it. And then it's going to be the 80% against the 20%. What do you think is going to happen with the organized gangs that we have in the in these big urban centers? With all their power and infrastructure, all their access to weapons and ammunition. What do you think they're going to do? You think they're just going to, when they're done looting everything that's there to loot, what do you think they're going to do? Just sing kumbaya until they starve to death? Oh, no. They're coming for your garden and your field. And what are you going to do? Well, you, you, you think that, that we're so affluent. We're so advanced. We're so beyond that. Who, who do you think is going to keep the peace? What do you think is going to happen when the infrastructure collapses. Do you think the military is going to keep the peace? The military that has families of their own to protect and everything such as that? And who's going to be in charge of that? And who's going to mandate that one state takes care of another state and so on and so forth? Let me ask you a question. Of all the great Countries and empires that have existed across the span of time. How many of them have remained? Zero. But we comfort ourselves, maybe is the word, into believing that the life that we live today will always be there. That somehow there'll always be bread on the shelf and milk in the cooler. That everything's always just going to work out. Maybe it will. But if you're a watcher and a studier of history, you'd be careful in your thinking. Maybe you say to yourself, as I hear people often say, but God has so richly blessed the United States of America, which he has. 
But have you studied your Bible? Do you know that the highest economic point in the history of the nation of Israel was under the reign of the wicked, lawless, idolatrous king, Jeroboam. And that the Bible says that because of his wickedness and idolatry, the people of God were ushered into captivity. Yet during his reign, it was an economic jubilee. So be careful the way you read the economic indicators as God's being God being pleased with what's going on in a nation or country. Okay, this is the face that I expected to see looking back at me from Lamentations 3. You know why? Because some of you in here have studied the book of Lamentations, I'm sure. And you know that the scenario that I just described is exactly the scenario that the prophet Jeremiah finds himself in when he writes Lamentations. That the book of Lamentations is a book written by one of God's most faithful servants. It is a book written by someone who knows disillusionment like no one else. Here is a man who spent 40 years of his life calling a people to repent. God told him in the beginning that he had his hand on him from the very beginning. I I, I just kind of shook a minute when Robbie quoted that verse this morning. He has absolutely no idea what I was going to talk about tonight. And, And yet God says, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to follow you. But this is my calling for you. And you know what Jeremiah does? He says, yes, sir, Lord, I'm your man. And so for four decades... As people live it up in the prosperity of the time. As people just party it up in the goodness of of all their needs being met. And the pantries and the cupboards being full. Drinking their wine and eating their fruit and loving their life. And there's Jeremiah, the lone voice, the weeping prophet, saying, Repent. You better repent and turn back to God. And if you don't, God is going to bring judgment down on this land. That things are not going to be a way that you think they're going to be. And they laughed at him. They mocked at him. They mocked him. They, they thought, you are such a ridiculous man. Look around. Does this look like the judgment of God? Why don't you just lay down your, your negative attitude and come and join the revelry and the party? And so what happened? Anarchy and mayhem ensue. That at the culmination of 
this 40 years of pleading and weeping and crying and begging and being thrown in pits and being mocked and being laughed at and being ignored and over and over. But he faithfully did what God called him to do. The Babylonians come marching in and utterly decimate Jerusalem. And so when you pick up the book of Lamentations, you need to first understand that it's written by a man who is sitting in the midst of the smoldering rubble of the great and awesome temple of God that is now nothing but a pile of dust and ashes. The Holy of Holies is no more. The Ark of the Covenant is long gone. And he's sitting there watching everything that he said that would come to pass having actually happened. And he is utterly and completely disillusioned. He watched in the destruction most of the people murdered. Most of the people that he knew, the people that he did life with, the people that he prayed for, the people that he preached to, any relationships that he built, most of them, they're gone, they're dead. Those that survived the onslaught of the Babylonians, they were taken off as slaves. So there he is, thinking, why didn't they listen? And, you know, it seemed Jeremiah, no doubt in his mind, was thinking that when I was saying these things, when God was calling me to say these things, I, I mean, I knew that they were great and I knew that they were terrible. And I, but, I, but all his life, he thought that, that the terribleness of them would be the thing that captivated people's hearts. He thought that, that surely the reason God was having him to say this was that people would someday listen, but he never dreamed that it would actually happen. He never in a million years thought that this would actually be a reality. I am telling you, that is the United States of America today. We live as if, oh, it can never be us. And God pleads and he pleads and he pleads. And our necks stiffen and our noses go up. And we just cling to an illusion. seemed like the more Jeremiah cried out, the more wicked people became. And the more they hated him personally, the more they despised and loathed the very sight of him. They did everything in their power to remove him so that no one would have to hear his horrible ringing voice of judgment. But it didn't work. And things came to pass exactly the way God said they would. And here's what Jeremiah thought. And here's what I would think. And I'm not going to tell you what you would think. I'm just telling you that I would be exactly where Jeremiah is. Jeremiah thinks, God, if you knew that they were never going to listen, 
If you knew that they were never going to turn, they were never going to repent, then why, oh why, Lord, would you have had me to do this for 40 years? Then wouldn't the point be to just have left me alone? Why did you call me to do something knowing that I was going to fail? Knowing that it wasn't going to work? That's what I would think. And that's where he is. Why would God have us devote our lives to something? Fully knowing that there would come a moment when we sat in the rubble and the ashes of everything that we have endeavored to do for him. And it seemed we utterly and completely failed. And there was nothing that we could have done to stop it. That's why this is the book of laments. That's why this is called the, the, the book of written cries. Because that's what it is. And it doesn't have to be as dramatic as the scene is in Lamentations. Trust me, it could be a far less scenario that could land you tomorrow in a place of utter disillusionment. I talk to people on a regular basis who say things to me like, well, I used to go to church. I used to read my Bible, I used to pray, but then my wife got cancer. And I said, I can't serve a God who would let that happen. I used to, I used to believe in God, but then we had a miscarriage. I can't believe in a God who would let that happen. I used to do, and I used to do this, but then God this, and now I am done. Because the illusion that I had about God was exposed and I simply couldn't handle it. So let's look in Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to go quickly through these verses, but I just want to show you a glimpse of what the prophet is feeling and facing. I want you to, I want you to feel the weight of these verses. I want you to see how utterly and completely rejected he feels by God. Look at verse 1. He says, I am the man who has been afflicted by the rod of his wrath. Verse 2, he has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Jeremiah says, my affliction is from God's rod that he personally afflicted me. There's no greater feeling of rejection there's there's no way around the fact that i am wounded and the reason i'm wounded is because god wounded me no one else wounded me god wounded me and it's not just the rejection of that it's also verse two the rejection of saying in a in a moment of darkness or, or struggle saying god I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I don't understand. What is your will? Lord, give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Open a door. Shine some light and allow me to see the way out of the place that I find myself in. 
Isn't that a prayer that you pray and I pray? But Jeremiah says, yeah, you can pray. But here's what he, he says. He led me and made me walk right into darkness. I wanted to see light. He led me to darkness. I wanted to see the way out. He led me to darkness. I wanted to know what his will was. Black. I'm looking, God. My eyes are open. Show me. Nothing. That's rejection. Not only does he feel rejected... But he feels as though God, in his rejection, is opposing Jeremiah. Look at what he says in verse 3. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. It's not just that he's turned his back and left me in darkness. But on top of that, he has advanced against me. In other words, he has turned offensively against me. That... That over and over he's turned his hand against me. That he has caused me. He's caused me to fail. He's, 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 he's impeded the progress that I've tried to make for him. So he feels rejected. He feels opposed. He, he feels worn out and broken. Look at verse 4. He says, Jeremiah says the Lord is... Aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. It's as if what Jeremiah is saying is that at the, at the end of the day, uh, that, that day in and day out, I would, I would give all that I had. I would come in and just collapse. I can't keep my head up anymore. I don't have anything left to give. My tank is utterly and completely empty. I've given it all and I have nothing To show for it. I am utterly and completely exhausted and used up. And it gets worse. He feels trapped by God. Look at verse 5 and following. He says that God has besieged him and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. That he has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. That he has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. Are you beginning to get a sense of the anguish of the faithful prophet of God? That he feels like An animal that has been captured and caged, unable to free himself, unable to to do the things that he needs to do. I, I was thinking about these five verses. I was thinking about how Jeremiah is 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 painting this picture of feeling trapped in this in this snare that he can't get out that on every side God's got him hemmed in. And I started thinking about when I'm in Brazil and literally 50 times a day we're walking down some dirt road or some trail in the middle of nowhere and there'll be some mud hut. And somewhere along the line, Brazilian culture 
decided that it would be a wonderful idea to to catch the, the, the most amazing birds you've ever seen in your life everywhere in Brazil. They're just everywhere. I mean, every kind of parrot, toucan, you know, Matt knows birds, so he's running around, he's going, oh, there's a red-tailed cockatoo. I'm thinking, who knows? how do you know that? And they, they catch these birds, and, they, and then they stick them in these little wooden cages. And they hang them on the front of their mud hut. And here's what it... Imagine these birds. They're in this little bitty cage. They can see the sky that they used to soar in every day of their life. They look at what they used to have, but they can't get out. There's no hope. Their life is, re- is, is reduced to just hoping that someone would throw a couple seeds in there. They look and undoubtedly see other birds flying around. And there they are locked up and caged in. And it just breaks my heart. I just think, man, what could be more horrible than that? That's what Jeremiah feels like. He also feels attacked by God. Look at verses 10 and following. He says that God has been to him like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush, that he has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces, that he has made me desolate, that he has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow, that he has caused the arrows in his quiver to pierce my loins. If you didn't have a Bible, you'd think I was making this up. I got a phone call Friday about midday. On the other end of the line is a labor and delivery nurse at a local hospital here. She said, Tony, how are you doing today? I said, okay, what's going on? She said, I got a situation. I wonder if you could help me. I said, sure, what's the situation? She said, I have a young mother here. Came to the hospital to deliver her. First child. Stillborn. She's devastated. Is there any way you could come up to the hospital and talk with her? Sure. So I get in my truck and as I'm driving... It's the story of my life. What are you going to say? What are you going to say to someone you've never met before? And even if you had, what are you going to say? You walk into the room and you look at the face of this broken young woman who is utterly disillusioned. Why? 
Why would God allow this to happen? What did I do to deserve this fate? Is it wrong for me to want a good thing? Is God punishing me? Am I cursed? If I am fine, just tell me. That's what feeling attacked by God is. What about verse 14? He feels humiliated by God. Scripture says that I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all day long. That the more faithful Jeremiah was, the greater the torment that came against him. The Scripture tells of songs that they would sing. They, they gave him these nicknames like the, the prophet of doom and they would sing little jingles about him. And no doubt everywhere he went, people would sing the little song about him and make fun of him and make light of his, his message and his situation. And his heart is burdened because he knows it's true. He knows God's given him this message, yet no one seems to care. No one seems to listen. And he cares undoubtedly Maybe not about all these people, but about some of them. But they don't listen. And they just humiliate him and they mock him. There's so much talk right now about Noah because of the movie that's out. I'm not going to give you any commentary on the movie, but I'm going to give you some commentary on the scripture. I want you to just picture our little lovely Bible story that we flannel graph in the preschool department and turn into this fun little zoo scene. But after years of ridicule and mocking, after years of preparing for something he could never understand, expect, or even comprehend, what does it feel like standing on the deck of the ark, floating in this endless ocean of rotting flesh. You ever thought of that? Why, God? Why? Men, women, children, babies, all dead. And him and his family floating along. thinking, couldn't this have went down a different way? What about when you feel like you're being victimized by God from overly harsh discipline? Look at what he says in verse 15. He says to God that he's filled me with bitterness and he's made me drink wormwood, that he's broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. That what Jeremiah is saying is that God has been overly harsh. That God has gone way too far. That, that reference to broken my teeth with gravel, I believe that refers to the, the, the ancient practice of torture whereby captors would starve their, their prisoners until the point of the brink of starvation and then they would give them food that was all mixed up with gravel and sand and they would give it to them so there was no way to separate it out so they'd have to eat it to survive and in the process grind their teeth into bits just to torture them just to just to just for sport 
And Jeremiah saying, God, it was enough already, but you went farther than you had to. You're like a torturer who tortures his captors. Verse 17 tells us that Jeremiah, he felt robbed, completely decimated emotionally by God. He says that you've moved my soul far from peace. Far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. He's he's at wit's end. He's portraying a person who is utterly emotionally dead. Just dead. I was having a conversation with Wade yesterday, as a matter of fact, about a a man that that he's been ministering to through the jail ministry, and it's been a very difficult time. And when he got to know this man who was facing some very serious charges. The man was so defeated. He was so emotionally dead that he had given up all hope and he didn't even care. And so when he goes before the judge at his sentencing hearing, the judge says, how do you plead? And the man responds, I don't care. And the judge said, I don't care about what? And he says, I don't care about you and I don't care what you do. Do whatever you want to do. And so the judge said, fine, you got 20 years for a crime that should have brought about six to eight. And so while he's sitting in his jail cell, thinking about 20 years, God begins to move in his heart. And he begins to realize what a mistake. What a mistake I've made. What in the world was I thinking? You see, when you you can come to a place in your life where you are so emotionally dead, you're like a zombie. You just don't care anymore. It just doesn't matter. You're numb. That's Jeremiah. And so what does he do? what, What does Jeremiah do in this situation? And the crazy thing is that some of you are thinking, oh, I know what you're about to say. And you probably do. But what you first have to ask yourself is, is this not? Is not what I'm about to say the very last thing that you would ever expect him to do? The last thing on a list of a thousand possibilities, this would be number 1,000. This would be the farthest thing from any thoughtful, rational decision made in the flesh. He looks to the last place you'd ever think that he'd look. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, after all that, remember my affliction and and roaming, the wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I 
have hope. Now, that that four-word phrase at the end of verse 21 is far too big for us to simply just read it and just ingest it and take it because you and me are not capable of allowing those four words to sink into our soul deep enough to actually be able to utilize them the way Jeremiah did unless we really, really sink our teeth into what is happening here. After everything, in the midst of utter disillusionment and absolute disappointment, Jeremiah comes to the realization that in spite of all of his frustration, in spite of all of his confusion, in spite of everything around him that is utterly bewildering him, in spite of everything that he has already said and meant it from the bottom of his heart, in spite of all of that, he's not saying that what he's just said is untrue. He's clarifying that it is true when he says, my soul still remembers and it sinks within me because it's all happening. This isn't my imagination. I didn't just dream that it was this bad. It really is. But he says in the midst of that. Therefore, I have hope. How? How? How is that possible? What he's saying is that the things that I know to be true about God, few as they may be, the things that I know to be true about God trump the things that I don't understand about God. The the one or two things that have anchored deep within my soul trump everything that I have just expounded about my current situation and circumstance. He's not saying in any way, shape, or form that it's not as bad as I made it out to be. He's not saying, oh, my bad. I didn't realize that the ice cream man was coming around the next corner. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, oh, yes, it's that bad. Oh, it's exactly what I said it was going to be. It is as bad as it could ever be. But in the midst of that, therefore, I have hope. To which I say, how? How? Here's what I say. Here's what I say to everyone. When I'm ministering to their heart. In the face of great loss. I look into the eyes of the family that I'm about to preach a funeral for. I don't explain to them why things are the way they are. I don't try to fix all the problems or emotions that they're feeling. I look into their eyes and I say, you in this moment have a choice. You have a choice. And the choice is you can fix your eyes. On all that you've been given. And all that you've experienced with your loved one. Or you can fix your eyes on what you've lost. And that choice is going to determine everything about what tomorrow holds. 
And Jeremiah is basically saying the same thing. That when you find yourself in the bottom of a pit that you didn't even know existed that deep, you have a choice. You can fix your eyes on all the things you don't understand about God. You can fix your eyes on all the injustice. You can fix your eyes on all the wrong. You can fix your eyes on all the hurt and all the pain and all the suffering and all the struggling. Or you can fix your eyes on the one or two things that you do know are true about God. And the way you answer that question will have everything to do about how you face tomorrow. Which is why the entire book of Job just utterly and completely bewilders us. We read Job, we know what Job says, we know the story, but let's face it. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Meditate on that for a day or two. Though he slay me, I will trust him. There is the picture of a man who has placed his focus on that ever so small place that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt is true about God. So how does Jeremiah do this? Three simple ways and then we're done. You know the simple part was a joke, right? Number one, he points us to God's unceasing love. Look at what he says in verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Now, here's what is happening in verse 22. Again, every week in this series, we see this turning point. Tonight, it's therefore I will hope. And so it's at the moment of transition that suddenly we find illumination into What has just occurred? And so the first step is this unceasing love of God in verse 22. Jeremiah is simply pointing us to this truth. That when you're dismayed, when you're disillusioned about God, when you you can't seem to figure out how God can be doing the things He's doing? How can this be happening? How can this be right? What's the, and you, you're inside of you, everything in you wants to bolt and run the other way. Because you're, you're like, this cannot, this can't be right. It can't be. So here's what you do. You take all of your grievances against God. You take all of your complaints and all of your injustices. You take all of your wrongs. You take every person who's ever hurt you. You take everything that has ever happened to you that you didn't deserve. You take all the things that you were aggravated and annoyed at God about. Take every one of them and pile them in a giant pile. Don't leave any out. 
Spend days meditating on all the wrongs that have been perpetrated against you. Think about all the dreams that never came true. All the people who were supposed to love you, but they hurt you. Think of all the things that should have been that never were. Take every one of them, every single one of them, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000. Take every one of them and stack them in a giant pile and put them on this side of the scale and say, God, here are all the things that have been done to me that I don't understand that don't make sense to me that are wrong that shouldn't have been but they were here's all of them every single one of them on this side of the scale and then on this side of the scale you put one simple truth the son of God was slaughtered So that you might be forgiven of your sin. That's all. Then you stand back and you look at that scale. And you ask this question. In light of everything that's piled up on this side. In light of everything that just simply cannot, maybe will not, maybe will never make sense to me. In light of all of that. If this is true. Does it not prove that God has unceasing love for me? Does it not prove beyond a shadow of a doubt? That though I don't know why, I can't understand, none of that makes sense. This proves He loves me. It doesn't prove I'll understand it. It doesn't prove that I'll always feel like it. It doesn't prove that my life will always be the way I think it's going to be. But if there's one thing I know, if the Son of God was slaughtered, The sinless lamb for my sin that he deserved none of and I deserved all of. The only thing I know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt is that he loves me. He loves me. That's what Jeremiah is telling you in verse 22. He's saying God loves you. Unceasingly he loves you. Because he slaughtered his son for you. And the only way you can separate yourself from the love of God is to separate yourself from the reality of the death of Jesus Christ for your sin. That once that blood has been applied to you, There is no, never will be, nor has been anything way that can separate you from the love of God. Is that not what Scripture says in Romans chapter 8? Now let's remind ourselves of what the passage says to make sure that we haven't overlooked something very important because it's so familiar to us. So I will read and you listen and let's see if it... Rings a bell in our ear. Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
No matter how big your pile is. And I'm not doubting that some of us in here couldn't mount it to the sky. It cannot compete with that. He loves me. No matter what, He loves me. That every single time I want to quit and give up and turn in and check out and go the other way, the cross beckons me back to the reality that He loves me. The great Puritan John Owen made this famous statement. He said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. The greatest offense to God is the belief that He doesn't love you. Because the greatest price was paid so that you would never doubt, always know, and be secure in that love. See, Jeremiah's going, yep, it's all true. Everything I said is true. It's as bad as I made it out to be, maybe even worse. But, oh, wait a minute. He loves me. He loves me unceasingly. Number two. Not only does He love us unceasingly, but He's God's unfailing compassion. Notice again, he says now, because his compassions fail not. And then he goes on the first part of 23 to say, they're new every morning. Now, you got to think about this a few minutes. You, you got you to you peer into this new every morning concept. You got to think about God as this good father who loves us unceasingly. And how is his his compassion that doesn't fail new every morning. How is that true for Jeremiah? In other words, the only way I can maybe shed some light on this for you is to use the illustration of a parent and a child. I think about when my children were Infants and there were long nights. Then they become teenagers and there's long nights. But there were those long nights when I was such a young Christian. There was so much I didn't understand and there'd be this relentless crying at two o'clock in the morning. And all I wanted to do was lay there. And I know Lisa's exhausted and I'm exhausted, but they just won't stop. And I'd begin to seethe with anger. I'd begin to just rise with frustration. 
you know, what is the problem? You, you go, you go in to the room and, you know, you, the last thing you're going to do is turn the light on. You know, you're going to spend the rest of eternity in that rocking chair. And so you try to be as quiet as you can and you go to the crib and you begin to check and you're like, your diaper's dry. You, you're, here's your binky. Everything you need is there. What's the problem? And you creep out of the room and you start walking back. And about the time you climb back into bed, it starts again. And you think, I'm just going to wait it out. And they just wail and they wail and they wail. And somewhere you just run out of patience altogether. And you get up and you go in there and you just think, you flick the light on. And you're ready to just start screaming at this, this little human that can't understand anything. And about that time you notice that there's a thumbtack stuck in their heel. There's a toothpick in their diaper. That all this time that you've been seething and railing in your mind and frustrated by what's happening, unbeknownst to you, there's a perfectly understandable reason for why they're crying. And suddenly all of your anger and all of your rage is gone in an instant and you're filled with compassion. And you look at this child and you just hold them tight and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And you feel like the biggest failure in the world for thinking the things that you thought. Why does that happen? It's because we don't have all the information. That's why it happens to us with God. You see, in the, in the human experience for the born again child of God, all the areas where we label God unfaithful can be traced back to the reality that we don't know the end of the story. And the reason he seems unfaithful, the reason that he's in our mind failed us, the reason that this can't be right is because we're only seeing half the picture, that the light's not on, that you don't know everything there is to be known. And you're casting judgment. It's as if we're declaring loss at halftime of the game. We're saying, nope, that's it. You lost the game. No, it's not. We're only in the middle. Well, nope, that's all I can see. That's all I know. So you've lost the game. No, no one would say that. But we do it to God all the time. We say, you know, your, your, your compassion, it fails us, God. It fails us. No, it, it doesn't fail us. It never fails. It's new every morning. That every time we breathe in His air... We have to understand that he's the only one in this equation that knows the end from the beginning. That he's the perfect father. And that he knows what the problem is. And so if he doesn't do something about the problem, 
then the perfect thing to do about the problem is nothing. Which really means that what we think is nothing is always something to Him. God's never doing nothing. He's never idle. He's always working. But we don't see that. And because we don't see that, we just declare, oh, His compassion. It's fleeting. And right now, it's not upon me. Because in my estimation and judgment, it's left me. And thirdly is unwavering faithfulness. Jeremiah says the great line that we sang tonight. Great, Lord, is your faithfulness. At the end of verse 23. In spite of all that he doesn't understand. The fact that he is ever faithful remains. You see, the fact that we don't know what's the end of the story does not somehow Grant us the liberty to decree God unfaithful. Now, now, listen, because I know where some of you are going, so let's just go there together, okay? And then we'll be done. Some of you are thinking, okay, Mr. Pastor, what about, and you've got your case. And you're saying, I know the end of the story. I already know the end of the story. You know what the end of the story is? They're dead. They're not here. They're not with me. So don't give me any of that. I don't know the end of the story nonsense. Because they're not here. And if they're not here, I know the end. Okay. So we can say... To God, well, God, you said that you would do this. You say that you would do that. And now, in the midst of the acknowledgement that we, most of the time, the majority of the time, maybe 99% of the time, don't know the end of the story. But in this instant, we know the end of the story. And the end of the story is, your faithfulness, God, failed. Did it? What does Scripture say about God's faithfulness when the last second ticks off the game clock of your life? What does it say? What is the end of the story? What does the Scripture say in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24? May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, your body, soul, and spirit. And do what? At the end of time, present you blameless. How? Before the Lord. Why? Because He who called you is what? He's faithful and He will do it. Because the end of the story is, yes, they may not be here with you. Yes, they may be separated from you. Yes, you can't hug them in this moment. You can't touch them in this moment. You can't smell them in this moment. But if they knew Christ, what's the rest of the story? The rest of the story is you have no idea, nor do I, of what the faithfulness of God means to them in this moment. Oh, he's faithful, all right. He's so faithful that he committed his son 
to the program that he would never, ever fail in. And that is that any person that puts their hope and trust in him, no matter how it ends in this life, will never end in the next. That we will be with him forever and ever in glory. That doesn't mean your heart's not broken. That doesn't mean it's not hard. And that certainly doesn't mean it for Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3, does it? No. But what it does mean is that we can be utterly and completely rejected by God. We can feel as though in our rejection that He's opposing us, we can be so worn out and broken down that we feel like an animal trapped in a cage, that we can be literally attacked By God and ripped apart like a wild animal was attacking us. We can be humiliated by God before those around us. We can be victimized by his seemingly overly harsh discipline. And we can be emotionally spent and live like a zombie. And in the midst of all of that, that may be utterly and completely true. The reality is that his love is unseeth. Ceasing, and that his compassion is unfailing and that his faithfulness is unwavering because the scripture says the prophet says the weeping, lamenting, broken prophet of God of 40 years of faithfulness in the midst of a, a depression and a trial and a bewilderment that none of us will ever be able to imagine. He says, through the Lord's mercy, I am not consumed because his compassion. Passions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what Lamentations chapter 3 declares to you and to me tonight. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we give you glory and we give you praise. We acknowledge and confess freely in this moment, Lord. That there's far more about you that we'll never understand than that which we do. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for these people I so love. That, God, you would set an anchor so deep in their heart. That, Father, no matter how the storm rages. No matter how broken they not only feel, but they are. No matter how alone and rejected. No matter how dark and defeated. The reality of their circumstances may become. That in that moment, Lord, you'll remind us to turn our eyes to that one little star shining in the darkness of a vast sky. And we will set our hearts on that little truth we know to be true. That we'll take all of the pain and the hurt and the injustice of life in a broken world. And we'll lay it on the altar of the reality 
that you love us. That we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love me, me. That your compassion never fails because you know what I can never know. And that your faithfulness, Lord, your faithfulness, oh God, you're so faithful. That no matter what happens, no matter how dark it may be, that if we were to walk in the very shoes of the prophet Jeremiah, that it would be utterly and completely absurd for anyone in this room to go home tonight as a born-again child of yours, lay their head down, fearful about economic collapse, anarchy, because you're faithful. So come, whatever may come. Because in the end, you're going to present me blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ. My body, my soul, and my spirit. Because you who called me are faithful. You're faithful. You never fail. You're faithful. God, every broken place and every heart in this room, just shout from heaven, Lord. You're faithful. You're faithful. Let us know, God, you're faithful. You're faithful. God, the greatest tragedy I could ever imagine in all the world would be to live a moment of my life, knowing what I know now, apart from you. Oh God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for salvation. It trumps everything else. In Jesus' name.